0: Hi and welcome to Defining Boundaries, a podcast about the interesting characters from our surveying and spatial industry and their unique perspectives on life and our industry. I'm Peter Cox and I use my 25 years of contacts as a surveyor and teacher to dig deep into the lives of others. Each fortnight, I delve into the life and times of people from all over the world who share the same profession and passions. Don't forget to subscribe to my channel, like, comment, feel free to share with your friends. Do you have a question about the surveying or spatial industry? Or would you like to join me for a chat? Or would you like to hear from someone in particular? If so, send me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram and we can catch up. This week, join me for part one of my chat with Paul Limotti, Managing Director at Limotti Group. So grab your drink, sit back and relax while we chat.
1: Defining Boundaries with Peter Cox.
0: Hi and welcome to Defining Boundaries. My guest today is Paul Lamotte. Paul is born and bred Central Coast guy. Growing up, he wanted a job where he could work outside when it was nice and inside when the weather was too hot or pouring with rain. Something where he didn't have to talk to too many people. And with a love for the bush and his use of topographical maps while hiking, it made surveying a natural fit for him. He has a love for sports and the outdoors. Paul also likes to spend time looking after his small farm. He is the managing director of a large survey, planning and engineering firm Lamotte Group in Raymond Terrace, just north of Newcastle, New South Wales.
1: Hi, Paul, and thanks for joining me today.
2: Hi, Peter, you're most welcome.
1: So, born and bred, Central Coast guy.
2: Yep, yeah, great part of the world. Born in Gosford Hospital, went to East Gosford Primary for a while, um, for one year before they built Churchy at Springfield, and then um, went there and then back to Henry Kendall High after one of our named after one of our national um, poets and um, just by coincidence, English happened to be something I um, turned out to be half decent at.
1: Yeah, right. What was it like growing up there?
2: Oh, great spot. You know, you had a heap of sporting uh, facilities to play just all manner of sports. It was if you were good at something and, you know, were eligible for a state selection, it was a short run down to Sydney to uh, do training with state sides or tryouts for state sides. Mm-hmm. You had most beautiful beaches anywhere. I still reckon that some of the best beaches in the country are on the Central Coast. And I, then I, I um, disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you think there's somebody better or somewhere Jeavis better do What you say?
1: Davis Bay all the way.
2: <laughs> oh, you're a South Coast girl. Yes, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, and then we had miles of bushland with mountains and caves and you go bushwalking or hiking or abseiling, um, Mm -hmm. motorbike riding, horse riding. There was just never a shortage of things to do. It was a great spot to grow up.
1: Yep, yep. I I agree. Being out of that city and being in the the coastal environment and you have all of those different things to be able to do outside because it was exactly the same for me growing up down the coast. The surfing, the walking, the hiking, the horses, the motorbikes, you name it, we got to do it.
2: Yeah, excellent stuff. And, of course, from a surveying perspective, it was an interesting spot too because it's very thickly vegetated for a great deal of the Central Coast, so you certainly had to quickly know how to use a brush hook and an axe. And um, it was also quite steep in the majority of it, so you certainly had to learn how to reduce slopes. A lot of stuff was – well, nearly everything was still done by – Mechanical uh, theodolites and chains when um, when I first started, so it just became par for the course. So uh, having lived up in the Hunter, it's so much flatter and so much more devoid of vegetation now that um, it's just completely different from from a surveying mm. perspective.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, it would be, but very different um, Hunter Valley to Central Coast. Mm.
3: Um,
1: a lot flatter for sure. That's
3: <laughs> Yes.
1: Yeah. So um, was surveying your first career choice when you left school?
2: Uh, first career choice as a full-time career. Um, I I did for a while consider being a ski instructor because I love my skiing, but I sort of at least whilst it might have taken me a long time to mature or grow up in other areas, I <laughs> I sort of, had the idea that if I took on skiing as a job, then it would become a job and I would lose the level of enjoyment. So I put that to one side. I previously had part-time jobs helping people install TV antennas and uh, another part-time job helping our local electrician and things like that, neither of which I minded. But I just thought that both of those jobs involved dealing with people and being around towns and urban environments and the idea of just working out in the bush and not having to deal with people all day appealed to me because there were no mobile phones and little internet oh. and smartphones and God knows what. So yeah, that didn't quite work out for me as I might have planned.
1: <laughs> Cause uh now is completely different in what you're doing to uh, <laughs> to way back when you were out in the bush, no phones, no nothing, using your brush hook, and now you yeah. have a business managing people. <laughs>
2: Well, Client. that's right. But, I mean, even if I go out in the field, you are you, uh, seldom out of phone range these days. Mm. In fact, you tend to complain if you are. <laughs> um, then, you know, you, you're often reliant on cellular networks to get connection for your um, RTK GPS and um, oh. you're just never far away from anybody. And even if you are, the moment you get back into um, um, range of a range of a cell tower all of a sudden you've got about 25 missed calls and you've got to return those calls. So you just tear your hair out in frustration, and think, what do I even bother turning my phone off? <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's just different. It's, you know, we live in this McDonald's world where everybody wants fast food, not something that's cooked over, over time. Yeah. Yeah. And you just have to deal with it. And if you don't make yourself available and don't talk to people, um, then they'll go elsewhere. And it's just an unfortunate part of running a business.
1: Mm, Mm. It's a shame, isn't it? They want it and they want it now and they want it as cheap as they can get it and the whole kit and caboodle.
2: (laughs) Well, they might might get it now from me. They might get it fast from me, but they won't get it uh, cheap from me when they put those demands on me.
1: Nice. That's what I like to hear. So you do own your own company. Yep. How long have you been running that for?
2: I believe in November this year, it will be 30 years.
1: Wow. Awesome. And Mm. uh, you've got a few people. How many people work for you?
2: How many people work for me? Oh, about half of them.
1: (laughs) Oh, we have a clown here. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got Um, planning and engineering within your firm. uh,
2: And strata certification Uh and bushfire threat assessment and, um, I'm sure I'm missing something. What else? Oh, project management sort of runs with all those things. Um, yeah. We used to have in-house ecologists, but um, oh wow, she's she went off on um, maternity leave and um, singing is how that was her sixth child, her sixth boy.
1: <gasps> oh my god! <laughs>
2: she, yeah, I oh, know, right? No, she's right. chosen just to work. She's just chosen to work part time from home now. It's just oh. a bit much to come and have a full time job.
0: I wonder why.
2: <laughs> yeah, I couldn't see the problem myself and she's very good at what she does but um yeah i, I had to say okay i understand
1: <laughs> oh that was nice um of-
2: <laughs> so all told the question was how many people work for me um including myself i believe at the moment it's 14 but okay it's around that number anyway yeah, yeah good number mm. seems like about 28 when i do the pays. <laughs>
1: What you do the pays or you've got someone to do it yeah ah
2: yeah? oh, well- Kylie Carly Kylie does Kylie's a finance officer there and and she does the um works out the pays, but I actually sit down and do the electronic transfers to the individuals okay. each each week yeah
1: yeah okay, so what do you actually do within your company
2: what do i do mm-hmm. um, i I probably would be described as the primary salesman for the company when somebody rings up and wants to know can we do this or how much will it cost to do that Mm -hmm. i'm usually the first point of contact there um there's a whole lot of administration that goes with running any company and anybody that runs a company would know that you know you're constantly getting insurance renewals and and people trying to sell you some product and your licensing for your software is expired and now they want to do this new system and now you've got to get finance for a new jigger and um, this car's broken down, so do you buy a new one or do you get it fixed? And you know, There's all that stuff that's just constant and unpredictable yeah. um, and it just takes up so much time of your day. Mm. Um, the planners, nothing in the planning world is ever clear, cut and straightforward. It's the most vague thing this planet's ever invented, especially the New South Wales system. <laughs> so you're constantly either dealing with our... Our own planners saying, well, you know, they're saying to me, how do you think we should deal with this? Or what do you think we should do? Or or can I contact somebody and say, for God's sake, this is ridiculous. You know, how can we we make this um, happen? Um, And then it's a little bit the same with the engineering, but not too much. The engineering I find is reasonably autonomous. Mm -hmm. And um, Adam McCall, who's the survey manager, does a fantastic job of running that section. Mm. So if Adam comes in to see me about an issue, I know it's a big problem because <laughs> he, he normally deals with things um, pretty good himself. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm also the Strata uh, accredited Strata certifier in the office. So I do a lot of Strata certification. Mm-hmm. And that's an area where I can save uh, um, clients or other surveyors' clients millions of, well, millions of dollars, that's no, an exaggeration, no, <laughs> thousands of yeah. dollars. Yeah. Um, possibly in some cases tens of thousands of dollars, um, and when I'm not doing that on the deputy mayor of Port Stevens Council. Oh, um, what I'm about I'm about to become the president of the Hunter Chapter of the HIA, and I'm a director on the board of the uh, Association of Accredited Certifiers, wow. and I'm the chairman of the Hunter Water Community Consultative Advisory Group, and I sit on the uh, community, consultative committee for the Brandy Hill uh, quarry and I'm <laughs> sure there's half a dozen others that I've forgotten about. So,
1: wow. Yeah. So how, how do you get time to do everything? That's a lot of different well, positions plus what you've got to do to make sure your business runs.
2: My word it is. So yeah. by being, I don't know, some people would say I'm lucky enough to have really good staff yes. um, it's possible I might have been astute to pick one or two who have helped me pick other um, good staff. But one way or another, we've ended up with very good staff. Yeah. Uh, we have very good client relations who just keep coming back time after time after time. Yeah. And that's all about the service that we provide and not about the price that we provide.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and a whole range of other things. But um, you asked me a question earlier, which was related to time and how I do things. And I, I can't remember what that question was, but now... Now you understand why I don't have a lot of time to do whatever it was. You asked me, uh, when do I do it? And I said, I don't do it. Yes. I can't think what it was. No, Can you remember I, what it was?
1: No. Um, I can't. I cannot think of it at the moment either, what it was.
2: Whatever it is, I don't get time to do it anyway.
1: No. <laughs> oh, you farm. Look, you farm. Spending yeah, well, it's, the- not, it, it's
2: not really a money-making venture. It's just um, uh, years ago. Why. I'm sure most surveyors have experienced this where neighbors fight. Oh, and I've time. had neighbors, you know, have horrible, horrific fights over like 50 mil. And they'll pay hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars for survey work to be done, just yeah. to try and knock their neighbor somewhere to make a move a fence 50 mil or something. Yep. So when I come across this 37 acre property, 15 hectare property um, that effectively had no neighbors, got one neighbor really. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, the rest of it's surrounded by roads and crown land and um, other things where I just don't have to deal with neighbours. I thought, I'm going to go and live there because I'll just never, <laughs> never have a neighbour that I have to fight with. And fortunately, the one neighbour that I've got is, is very pleasant, never had an issue and um, would not expect to have one to be quite honest. So it's not a money-making venture. It's just space around me, peace and quiet. and We have some sheep here and horse and a rooster and a chicken and um, three dogs and lots of wildlife. So it's no. not really a farm. The only thing I farm here and make money out of is firewood. But oh. the reason why I do that is the firewood, we had a, what they call a superstorm up here in 2015 and we got really hit hard here by it. And we had dozens and dozens of seriously big trees um, just blow over, not covered by insurance. Yeah. Had to cut them all up myself into logs and then split them into firewood mm-hmm. um, just just so they weren't laying all over the ground, creating a great mess, basically. Yeah. And um, now every winter I um, sell bags of split firewood and slowly recoup all the money I spent on chainsaws and petrol and all the time I spent um, cutting <laughs> it up, splitting it up. And it was supposed to be a good exercise for me. But as a result, I've had to have both shoulders reconstructed because I was, I was manually splitting it with a block splitter. Oh, so no. I've had two shoulder reconstructions in the last 18 months as a result. Oh.
1: Jeez. Are your shoulders all right now?
2: Yeah, I'm back playing cricket now. I'm back the last two weeks playing cricket. And the last the last shoulder reconstruction was um, 1st of October last year. I could have been playing. I actually was going to play the first game, sorry, the last game before Christmas, but um, it got rained out. So um, uh. I've now been playing since Christmas. And they're not perfect, but they're feeling much better than they were. You can. They were torn before. I'd actually torn ligaments in both of them. You could feel it. Wow. Now they feel really good it 's yep. just a question of building the strength up again.
1: yeah, okay, so now you can go back out and swing brush hooks again. <laughs>
2: yep. and I was swinging brush hooks and swinging axes and hitting pegs in that yep. um, developed my hand eye coordination, which was why um, I used to score a great deal of runs at cricket. but The, the more I got into administration, the worse my cricket got.
1: Oh, so, oh how funny. So I, I,
2: Oh, it's a direct correlation there. Um, yeah, Best Cheney I never knew was also a really, really top-line golfer. It could have been a pro if he um, uh, was more interested in the sport and less interested in the beer. But um, <laughs> yeah, so chopping and uh, chopping and hitting peas develops that hand-eye coordination and the the wrist timing and the elbow timing. It's um, quite incredible.
1: Yeah. Okay. I'd never really thought about that. I know that people have sort of said that you know, people who are good at maths should do surveying and all this sort of stuff. But there was also, um, I think it was Craig, might have been Craig Sand who said that um, also people who are good at sports would be suited to our profession as well because they love being outside, they love walking, moving around, all that kind of stuff, that um, it's not just the maths. There's the other things that sort of go with our job that uh, a lot of people would would like or would be suited to because they enjoy that kind of uh, thing.
2: I concur entirely because in doing the day-to-day job, especially now with computers, you're really not doing much maths. You are um, pushing buttons on a computer and the computer's doing the maths for you. But even back when I started in the early 80s, the maths was, um, unless you got into geodesy or something like that, if you were Mm -hmm. just doing you know, your fairly regular day-to-day type surveying, it was um, trigonometry was about it. Yeah. So once you got used to doing that sort of every day of the week, it became very much second nature. Mm. So you didn't have to think too much about it. So it really, from that perspective, is a job far more suited to somebody who just simply enjoyed being outside and getting a result. You know, you, you, you traverse between a few marks and you're you then doing comparisons and working out and it all fits together and happy days or or your Travis closes, or whatever, uh, they were all um, things that kind of had a sporting element to it. You know, you you somehow Mm. performed a task and got a result and happy days if it worked. If it didn't, you had to go and do it all again. So, yeah, and you're outside enjoying the sun and the weather and and not dealing with people like you would be if you were working in a shop as a retailer or in the bureaucracy somewhere. So, yeah, I totally concur that Mm. sporting people are greatly suited to our particular profession.
1: Mm. So did you go straight from school to university?
2: No, I went to TAFE. I went straight from school to um, uh, Sydney TAFE. Okay. And, uh, in fact, I've never really particularly had a day off. The day after I left school, I went and did, uh, started uh, work experience with a mob called um, Bannister and Hunter and Gosford, Uh, Battleston and Hunter were a massive big firm back then. They seem to have dwindled in size a little bit since then, but they were a massive big firm back then. And it was only supposed to be two or three weeks um, of work experience, but because, I don't know, they were busy and I must have showed some, I don't know, skill or, or keenness or enthusiasm or something. So they kind of kept me on right over Christmas. Uh, right up to the point where the TAFE course started in in February. And then back then the TAFE course was four 10-hour days a week and you had one day off a week to try and get a job. Uh-huh. And I immediately got a job with a firm called Budnick & Ranson for one day a week. And so, yeah, I sort of left school one day, started work experience with um, Bannister and Hunter the next day yeah. and continued doing that right through the Point in time where I started the TAFE course, and then mm-hmm. right when I started the TAFE course, on the on the fifth day, started a part a part time job with um um Budnick and Ranson. Yeah, and yeah, it just sort of all started from there.
1: So, tell me, are you using beer bottles to hold your phone up?
2: <laughs> that was very astute of you, and that's exactly what happened. And for <laughs> some inexplicable reason, in perfectly still conditions, it just fell over. So I was typically look around for something else to prop it up with, and you busted me. That's not
1: fair. <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> so, um, so was TAFE, that was two years full time when you did that? Yep. Mm-hmm. And um...
2: I did. I, it was that was the course, but in my case, Budnick and Ranson so got so keen for my services, they persuaded me to go and work full time and deal with the the rest of the course by correspondence. And that was bloody hard work for Mm -hmm. a young fella who was happy enough to work, but also I was really, really into my sport back then. I was playing a lot of baseball, rep baseball, as well as cricket, um, as well as my skiing. And um, it was uh, very, very time consuming and um, I had a lot of late nights and bleary eyes.
1: Yeah, I could imagine. it's uh it's hard for a young person to try and manage and manage their time to do the things they want to do outside because everybody's so busy at the moment as well um with work that they're working such long hours and all that sort of stuff that I think they maybe struggle sometimes with their time management
2: yes um I also don't know how anybody would do it now um at least back then you couldn't be, you know, constantly bothered by phones and Facebook and yes. um, emails and things. So yep. you could um, get away and give yourself some quiet time, and get stuff done. But I really don't know how you deal with it now.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah, the, the social media is a big thing now. It takes up a lot of their time, that's for sure.
2: It does. Mm. And there's an expectation that you will put stuff out there. You know, we have a, a company Facebook account, and then, of course, I've got a personal one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like if I don't say something on Facebook every forty-eight hours, all of a sudden I'll get messages from people asking me, "Am I all right?" Yeah. Hey, wow.
3: Okay. <laughs> you,
1: you've,
2: you, you've disappeared out of cyberspace, mate. What's going on? Oh. So. Uh, yeah.
1: I've been doing a bit more lately, and and um, well, you yeah, know maybe over the past three months or four months or something. Can I was kind of I don't know if it was today or on the weekend or something, and it was like. Oh, I could quite happily just shut it all down at times and just completely cut off and not look, not post, not do anything, and I think I'd be happy.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, well, I, I certainly don't miss the old days before we had smartphones, let's put it mm-hmm. that way. I, I see the benefits of all the stuff we've got today, but it does none of it makes me miss the old days when we didn't have it.
3: Yeah, yeah
1: oh okay so back to you did take correspondence so how long did um, it take
2: you? um honestly, i honestly can't remember now so i did part of the course full-time and then um i was doing correspondence for oh, i don't know the course was two years full-time i know I was dealing with it for a lot longer than that. Um, okay. Probably, probably three and a half years, I suppose, all time, yeah, right. all told. Mm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And
1: you are registered or not? No, no.
2: No, okay. never became a registered surveyor because um, you still need a degree and have always needed a degree to do that unless you become an, an article surveyor under the old system, which okay. I think they stopped doing that in the – very late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, yeah. Um, The surveyors that I worked for went were both article surveyors, and oh, um,
3: okay.
2: They both fairly convinced that that still should be an option. Mm. Um, and I must admit, having now employed oh, over the years, maybe fifteen or twenty people have been through the university system.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, I feel that there is a role for either article surveyors to um, still be an option as a way to do it or the university system to be changed such that a great deal more of the um, uh, the whole system and is done on the job rather than in the classroom.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, because I've just done tape myself, um, working and having... Um, you know graduate surveyors or they weren't quite graduates then but coming in and working and stuff and it was like had to teach them how to do you know the joins the calculations show them how to set it up how to do the survey the field notes back in the office show them how to do the cad stuff fix up all of their errors and all that kind of stuff and it was like these guys are nearly finished uni what are they getting out of it for me to have to show them how to do all that. I mean, that was a long time ago. I haven't, you know, worked with any for lately um, sort of thing, but you're kind of going, how's this work?
3: Um,
2: Yeah, you're right. I I normally tend to um, pick up people that are in their second year at uni, maybe their third year at uni. So by the time they've actually finished and graduated, they do have some greater knowledge of, you know, the the -the on-the-job skills. Yeah. But I, I often wonder why it's beholden on the employees and the, and the firms out there to do that rather than the system not be changed uh, to make, you know, hours on the job a, a more mandatory part of the the whole scheme. So by the time you graduate, well, you don't graduate unless you've got X number of hours um, up your sleeve of on-the-job training.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um hmm something you need to take to Michelle. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I think Michelle's um, over, all over this to a certain extent. I yeah. believe that um, she's constantly in touch with BJ Hammonds, who yes. on behalf of the board has been trying to rewrite the whole uh, TAFE course as a starting point to try and yep. make this TAFE course more uh, up-to-date. And then once that was put to bed, they were then going to, I believe... Uh, take on the universities to try and get their courses more meaningful for what, you yeah. know, surveyors actually do.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, so, yeah, so I think Michelle, in all fairness, is sort of onto this, but yeah. I yeah, will I'll, I'll remember to mention it to her next time I yeah. speak to her.
1: I keep throwing things at people going, oh, you'll have to tell Michelle about that. We'll have to get Michelle involved with that. <laughs> she gets things done. She's good.
2: Yeah, I agree, yeah. She's she does good get things hmm. <laughs> done
1: um so you've had your business for 30 years as you Mm -hmm. kind of worked um in the industry and all that sort of stuff what made you decide to start your own business (laughs) or how did that come about how did it come about
2: that's pretty easy really um so as i said i worked for buddington ranch and surveyors for uh it would have been about seven years and um Budnick and Ransom and survivors were doing a lot of big retirement villages uh-huh. and back then reti- big retirement villages in particular were fairly new to New South Wales and um, lifetime leases and stage strata schemes were a, a fairly new thing and people weren't overly familiar with them so Budnick and Ransom um, whether they liked it or not were thrown in the deep end and, and had to deal with these large um, schemes Yep, and so there was a mob wanted to build a 2,000-unit um, retirement village at Foster, wow. and they had heard that Bud Budnick and Ransom were the people that dealing with these big ones on the Central Coast, mm-hmm. and so they came to see Budnick and Ransom. Anyway, they figured out that I was doing a great deal of the um, the work that was involved, and um, you know there were no computers; and everything it had to be plotted by hand,
3: Yep.
2: calculated by hand, yep. um, you know, knocking out designs and you know, coming up with plans as to how it all worked, where why the bowling Green should be there and why the Pools should be there and you mm-hmm. name it. Anyway, so they figured that um, rather than pay a consultancy for to Bundy Ranch, Ransom, they would um, make an offer to me, which I couldn't refuse, which they did. And I went to foster and um, at age, what was I? 24 or 25, something like that, and yeah. got a job as their project manager okay. so just to run the whole show, which was a pretty big deal for somebody of that age right then.
3: Definitely. But anyway,
2: um, that, after four years, that show was sort of running up and was all um, fairly autonomous. You know, everybody knew each stage was exactly the same as the last stage. Mm-hmm. And this mob had a lot of other conventional developments going on um, in the Hunter just subdivisions, you know, residential subdivisions primarily, but they had some rural ones and some industrial ones as well. So they figured that um, um, rather than pay the consultants down the hunter, that I might be able to take care of some of that. So they said to me, just go back to the hunter for three days a week. Yeah, it turned out I needed about 19 days a week. But (laughs) nonetheless, I went back and I did it and I ended up staying down there for, and it was like four years I worked for that particular organisation And then in 1991, um, in the middle of the um, recession that we had to have, um, it's not fair or correct to say the mob I was working for went broke, but that's how it was perceived. What happened was the mob that they were getting financed through just called in the loans. Um, Um, Basically, it was the bank was going broke. So the bank referred to some clause in their thing and said, yeah, well, we know we've lent you money and we know it said you're supposed to repay it on a certain basis, but guess what? We need our money now, and so we want our money now. (laughs) And of course they said, but we got all these subdivisions that are like half built or three quarters built. We can't give you the money until we complete them and get settlement, and they just foreclosed. So they literally shut down what was still a viable um, organisation in the middle of the recession that we had to have. And so I found myself in November, 1991, I was, I was the last person still turning up to work at that office. Everybody else had just slowly given up.
3: Oh, you know, God. people weren't
2: getting paid. Yeah. Cars were getting repossessed. Yeah. Um, it was really a bad time then. Um, eventually, the receivers just walked in and I was the only one there and they walked in and looked at me and they said, who are you? <laughs> and I said, well, you know what? You've just walked into my office, so it would be normal that you tell me who you were. And he went, oh. So he told me he was a receiver manager. And Anyway... So that was uh, the end of that. But word spread like wildfire that uh, that organisation had um, gone into receivership. But the phones hadn't been cut off. Lots of other things had been cut off, but the phones weren't. And the phone just started ringing, and I got a number of job offers that very day, and I also had a number of people rang and said, if you start your own business, um, we will give all our work to you. And I thought, this is amazing. You know, like, I don't know exactly what it was that I did, but i obviously impressed enough yeah. people. yeah. And one of them was a very sizable builder. Mm-hmm. Um, another was a um, um, very sizable uh, firm of solicitors. So mm-hmm. I rang um, Keith Budnick, who was a surveyor that I used to work for, who had retired because he, he'd he been becoming bored. He'd bought a farm and was bored and had expressed an interest in coming back to work. So I said, Keith, well, if I, if I start a business, will you um, – um, be happy to come back to work. And he said, yeah, I would. So he moved back over from Tamworth and um, between the pair of us, we um, started this business, which yeah. 31 years later is still going.
1: Wow. Business of circumstance.
2: Mm. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't a choice per se. Oh. I never actually had this idea that, oh, yeah, one day I'll start my own business. I was At that age, I was still far too busy playing sport and chasing girls to be too worried about um, – <laughs> running running a business going yeah. fishing and ah. Oh. but all of a sudden i was confronted by it i think i was 28 at the time
3: yeah
2: and um um yeah the mobiles was working for it had just gone down yeah right. so i can also say though i was never spent a day unemployed because the last day that i was at that office and the phone was ringing also became the first day that i started the, the new business new
1: business. And that's a pretty good story. I mean, not good for the company that had, you know, the wool pull, the, the rug pulled out from underneath them, but, um, you know, good story for you. And it's still going.
2: Um, yeah, well, I suppose it is when you look at it in that perspective. And I, whenever times do get tough and the um, economic situation tightens up a bit, I always remind everybody at work that, you know, the company was started in the middle of the recession that we had to have. So mm. with any luck. We should be able to survive just about anything. Yeah, and uh, it's there's a certain resilience there amongst the um, in the attitude of the people there that you know throw at us what you can, we'll we'll overcome.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good attitude to have, and um, you know I always see these things coming up in social media that you know a good leader always surrounds themselves with um, um, with good people. Um, using people to their strengths and all that kind of stuff to for everybody to be able to, you know, bring out the best in everybody. So, you know, something's obviously working right there.
2: (laughs) Um, That's true, but I have to be perfectly honest and say some of my staff impress me so much that they actually bring out the best in me. They make me um, try to be better, to try and keep up with their uh, levels and their their skills. Um, Some of them have got organisational skills that just – blow me out of the water. Yeah. Um, some of them have got um, levels of determination to get something job or to find a solution to a mm-hmm. problem
3: mm-hmm. that
2: are just second to none. And I really admire them for that. And that drives me to greater heights as well, I must say. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: No, that's um, – it's nice to have people around you that uh, do want to make you do your best, I think, and make you grow and learn and achieve more. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
2: and I really liked them all too. Like when COVID really started to hit and everybody was scared, you know, last last March of what are we going to be doing and we're going to have a job. Yeah, I really felt for my staff. You know, I could tell that they were all worried about where they're going to have a job or not. And I was um, implementing all sorts of things. Um, surveyors, rural surveyors in particular, I find have an odd skill that many of them don't even realise they have, and that is they're not bad at fencing.
3: Oh, particularly okay. rural
2: fencing. So <laughs> I was riding. I was riding to all sorts of rural areas, letting them know that if there was a, there were so many bushfires and things, there were so many oh, thousands yeah. kilometres of fencing that were destroyed, yeah. that if if they needed um, fencing done, we would do it, yeah. and we'd do it at a rate which was less than a normal fencing because we wouldn't be able to do it as fast, but it would be enough to sort of come out, keep my um, staff occupied and engaged, Yeah. Um, even if we weren't making money, just sort of, you know, just keeping everybody alive somehow. Yep. And I was also aware that so many bushfire-prone areas had lost so many houses mm. that um, there was going to be a shortage of people that could do bushfire threat assessments. There was going to be a shortage of people that could um, assist with preparing DAs just for single houses and things. So I was putting it out there everywhere that, you know, we're available to do these things. Um, but oddly um, there was only a relatively short downturn in actual workload and all of a sudden it started to plateau and the next thing started going up. And I, th- I haven't actually checked the figures, but I- and normally we do things by um, a fiscal year, yeah. but I'm pretty sure in terms of calendar years, last year ended up being our best year ever. I'm almost convinced of it. I'd have to double-check that. If it wasn't, yeah. it would be very close to it.
1: Yeah, it's amazing the the surveyors that, that I've spoken to who who have all the smaller businesses and staff have been absolutely run off their feet last year.
2: Yeah, with work. Um, so you know, obviously that's just not our organisation and um, our individual skills. It was just a, a thing generally. But um, I I do think by putting putting it out there that we're available to do all these things, it certainly helped us even more than. Just natural yeah. events, of course, everybody to be busy.
1: Yeah, most definitely. Um, and helping the community. Mm. Yeah, helping the people. Because, yeah, because you had really big, um, really bad bushfires up there like we had down south as well. So,
2: No, um, for once we didn't. Port oh, we- Stephens, Port Stephens ha- often has bushfires so big in their own right that they actually make not just the national news but oftentimes the world news. Yeah. But in... In all of 2019, uh, sorry, the summer of 2009 and 2020, we were very fortunate in Port Stephens. There were, to the north of us, like from Foster, Mile Lakes, um, even just um, anywhere north of Karooa, really, there was substantial fires. Maybe, maybe a few times in the very northern part of Port Stephens were affected, but not, the, not the urban parts and not the bay and not very much. But this work I'm talking about um, is actually down your part of the world. Oh, down? Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what I was saying. That we knew there were thousands of kilometres of fences were destroyed, and a shortage of people doing bushfire reports. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, I was putting it out there that we could we could be of assistance. And as a result, we're still doing a lot of work down there, uh-huh. but more conventional work right now, planning and yeah. um, surveying work down there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's interesting then to um, be traveling so far away to to do that sort of stuff.
2: Um, well, we've always liked it, you know. Just in the last, in the last three months of last year, we were doing jobs from Jindabyne, Ballina, mm-hmm. uh, Lennox Head. Um, we've also, because we've got an office at um, Norellan and another one at uh, Barrel as well.
1: Oh, okay, um, I didn't know that.
2: Mm. Right, mm. makes sense. Um, but to be perfectly honest, ever since COVID started, both those offices have been seldom attended. Mm-hmm. because we would we would rotate the staff from our head office to go down and attend those offices, but we sort of tended to stay clear because of COVID. Yeah. But um, once that settles down, then we'll get back to the system we're in where we have people down there all the time. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're still doing all the work down in that part of the world, but they're driving down and, um, and doing it and then coming back.
1: Yeah, okay. So you've got no one that actually lives down there that works in those like in those offices? Is that what you're saying? Not normally. That's
2: exactly what I'm, yeah. exactly what I'm saying. That, those two offices were relatively new things. Um, first, first took up the office in October 2019, and the idea was we'd, uh-huh. we'd travel down there and we'd, um, we'd do all the work and we'd eventually, um, eventually find some people, you know, to, that live down there to, you know, form part of the team and mm. start manning those offices. Yeah. Um, learn our way of doing things. Yeah. But we just couldn't get that off the ground before COVID hit, and um, yeah. so yeah. But it kind of hasn't mattered really because, like I said, people were aware of our presence in the area, and um, um, we just had a great deal of work in, particularly the southwestern part of Sydney, the Southern Highlands, um, mm-hmm. down the Snowy Mountains, and uh, Bega, uh Shoalhaven, Wollongong. It's got current jobs in all of those places as well as, as I set up the coast, Ballina, Lennox Head just pretty much everywhere on the eastern side of the Great Divide and quite a number of places on the western side. Mm. Goulburn, I did a, did a Strata certification in Goulburn, when was that, in July or August last year? Yeah.
1: Gosh, you get around. <laughs> well, your crew gets well, around, I should say.
2: <laughs> well, we we all do, and with phones and laptops and um, you know all sorts of mobile networks, uh, we're able to, to do it these days. And um, you provide people a good service and yeah. they will pay for that good service. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Quality service wins, hmm. you know, most of the time. And I think, um, you know, you still got your companies who just want it on price, but uh, I think there's a lot out there that realise that you're not always getting what you pay for.
2: Yeah, well, there's just people out there that work on that basis. Some people just always want the cheapest price. Some people want the peace of mind to know that they're paying for um, a service that's reliable Mm. and that has been around for a long time and they're going to, if a problem does turn up, they're not going to suddenly run away because they've been there for a long time. So they want to know that they can find them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so you talk about all this new technology, you use a fair bit of it within the company now?
2: Or you still...? Yeah, I, I've always thought that we, uh, if we're not at the very forefront of technology, that we're um, we're right up there. You know, we have um, new jiggers um, that are never more than three or four years old, uh, unless I have to go and do something. Then they give me the oldest pieces of crap in the office I can find and say, <laughs> here, go and do this. Um, but... You know, software um, and PCs and GPS, um, all, you know, modern, I might be wrong, but I would have to say we don't have a piece of software or anything or any GPS equipment or software that's more than two years old except for those one Topcon bit of gear we've got. If anybody would like to buy a Topcon jigger and GPS, please let me know. Good price. Good price? Um, (laughs) Good price, yeah. Yeah. but yeah, all the all the other gear, I'm pretty sure it was no more than three years old anyway. So yeah,
3: um,
2: yeah. Whenever something new comes along, and the boys with their apps on their phone for finding um, PMs and using Six Maps on their phones, and you name it, if there's a there's a way of doing it, they'll find it. Steve, the engineers, found this website where he can get um, or this app which he's got on his phone and on his desktop. Um, where you can overlay the layers of um, the sewer mains and the water mains. I was going to say anywhere in New South Wales. I don't think that's right. It's certainly within the bounds of Hunter Water. Okay. And um, I think there's one, one or two other organisations that also must upload their GIS information to the same app. So that's handy, you know. You can just stand on a block of land, look at this app, and see. oh, yeah, there's a water main out the front, and there's a sewer main runs down the back or down the side or whatever. That's a really handy bit of gear. So yeah. here I am. Um,
1: but does he I, still I doll, does he still dial before you dig?
2: Oh, absolutely. Every job <laughs> we do, we get a just we get to dial before we dig. Yeah. Everyone. <laughs> mm.
1: There's uh some pretty horrendous stories out there. So I'd hate to think someone just using it up thinking that oh that's where everything is.
2: <laughs> oh no, 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 <laughs> no. No. dial before you dig on I think on every job, the mm. the Sharon who makes up the job files for us irrespective of what the job description is. Um, well, when she first started, she was still on every job, but I think they finally sort of said, right, now you're familiar with the whole process. This is like a year later. Yeah. Um, on the following sorts of jobs, we don't actually need it. Yes. So, but she's got an understanding. But any job that involves any physical work whatsoever, definitely die before you dig.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Which is protection. But oh, geez, we find a lot of errors in them too. Don't worry.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think they all kind of have a few. Um, I, I've I've seen some before that have been a bit a bit iffy as well. So um, it's always a bit of a worry, isn't it? But they were talking yeah. about putting all of that information up into um, a GIS type database as well at some stage, accessible. I know I read somewhere about it.
2: Well. It makes sense. I mean, really what's happening at the moment is all the information is on a computer somewhere Mm -hmm. or several computers. Mm. And then a human is taking up their time at say my office. Yes. And then some humans getting it at the other end and downloading the information and then sending it to my office. Whereas if the human at my office could just get direct access to a combined GIS database that had Hunter Water, Ausgrid, NBN, gas company, you know, layers on it Mm. but it certainly saves some time and in this day and age there's absolutely no reason why that can't be done
1: no that's right there's there's enough um enough software technology all that sort of stuff out there to be able to do it that's for sure Mm. do you use any drones or scanners or anything
2: um very occasionally we use a scanner and if we use a drone then we normally outsource that to somebody like BJ at five or mm-hmm. um, something like that. But yeah. it certainly has its place, but we don't have enough. Yeah. Well,
3: I'll just, do we have brain. enough
2: work to justify it? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, what we don't have is enough staff and resources to say, well, don't do what you normally do and go and do this instead. Yeah. You just keep doing that and we'll get somebody like BJ to, um, mm. to do the um, drone work." Yeah.
1: No, he's, um, he loves all that kind of stuff, doesn't he?
2: He does and he's very good at
1: it. I think the day the day that I interviewed him, he was out sitting on a big mound somewhere, just about to get on do a job or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Did his interview out on a pile of dirt somewhere?
2: <laughs> okay, well imagine that, yeah.
1: Yeah, he's good value. Um, what's what's the thing that you love the most about surveying? Is there one particular thing?
2: Oh, yeah, if I had my way, if I had my way, which, of course, I never get, um, <laughs> I'd just spend my whole time out there um, doing rural survey work, looking for lock spits and corner trees and uh-huh. reading the old plans and doing azimuth comparisons and yeah. making them all fit together like a, a, a jigsaw puzzle and getting a real good sense of job satisfaction. Yes. There was nothing like finding, you know, a bunch of old marks and, um, you know, four or five adjoining portions that are all on different azimuths and doing your azimuth comparisons and sort of laying in where a lock fit should be somewhere and, and lo and behold, there it was and you find okay. it and working out proportional um, uh, changes and things. so that was a really satisfying um, part of the job. Yeah. And of course, when you're out there, even after they invented mobile phones, more often than not, you didn't have signal out there. So you just had a <laughs> nice peaceful day. Um, and I'm talking back when you didn't even have... Programmable calculators. You had scientific calculators, which means you didn't need a log book,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, but you still had to, you know, do all your trigonometry um, manually, albeit yeah. with a calculator. Yeah. yeah, You could work out the cosine of an angle for you, but you still had to work it out yourself. Yes.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, it was no no part of the job has ever been more job satisfying than back in the days when you had to do that. Mm. Um, sometimes when you get a particularly difficult da approved through council or you know finalized and the plan registered that can offer a degree of satisfaction but i never got anything like the amount of satisfaction with those things as i did um when you're doing an old uh, a rural survey particularly using old plans yeah that was it that's my favorite always was and always will be
1: so if you if you had to um explain one thing to um, a teenager to convince them to come into the industry, what would it be? And
2: I'd probably start by saying surveyors, surveying is a lot more than what you see on the side of the road. I mean, most people's perspective of surveyors is very unfortunate in my opinion. They see them on the side of the road setting out a bit of curb and gutter on a stinking hot day in a noisy traffic laden uh, Mm -hmm. environment and they think that's all there is about it. And they can think, oh, how boring is that? Well, of course we all have to do that from time to time. And I suppose some surveyors, if they work for the RMS or council might have to do it a lot of the time, but it's nowhere near the big part of the job. Mm -hmm. um, So I explain, start by saying, so you don't have to do that. You know, if you choose not to do that kind of surveying or work in that environment, um, there's far more to it than that. And then, of course, I go, well, okay, so what more is there to it? And I explain that there are things, like I just said, that I like, you know, being right out there in the in the boondocks yeah. and the rural stuff, um, right up to, you know, um, the rocket science side of surveying, you know, how do you, um, how do you plot a trajectory for moving targets up in the sky with the, off from a revolving Earth? You're right mm-hmm. in your mass, you can do that. Um, through to countless things in between. I say, you know, you want to drive from here to here, here's a here's a old Gregory's roadmap. Oh, I'm not going to use that. I'm going to use my GPS. And I say, <laughs> well, who do you think derived the, um, the um, formulas and the mass behind that and the data and put the satellites up in the space to make all that happen?
3: Yeah.
2: I said, so if, if you're happy to use that technology, you can be a part of it if you want to be. Um, yeah. And I try all those things and I get... Limited success with it. I, I, I think I could talk most people into doing most things, but it's a real struggle to get too many people to take up surveying. Um, conversely, um, a lot of people that are at university will ring me and see if they can get some part-time work, and I'm happy to do that because they've already chosen that particular profession. Yeah. Yeah. Then when I ask them why they chose it, the answer is usually, I'm not really sure. I didn't no. think I liked engineering, but I thought this was something like it. So yep. it's, a diff- it's, it's a difficult profession to sell and that yeah. is reflecting in the numbers yes. and the average age of surveys that we have at the moment.
1: Yeah, because I know like, you know, we have Elaine and Ellie in, in England who started, you know, Get Kids Into Survey where they're really focusing on the younger kids um, sort of thing. But then you sort of go, well, what is there for the older kids? I mean, I've said it numerous times that you know my teenagers their friends didn't know what I did didn't know what a surveyor was and was really surprised when I told them they'd never heard of it before
2: yep and I'll say another thing too despite everything in this world that we live in with you know gender equality I've been quite shocked on a number of occasions um well I want to say number two different days but with four or five different groups of kids they had this um, thing, it was organized by one of the local schools, and I can't remember which one, but it was in a park, and they got all people from different professions to go there and have a little stall, if you like. Yeah. Um, and the kids would spend, there'd be a group of say, five or six kids, and they'd come around to stall number one, and they'd talk to that person, and then they'd come to stall number two, and they'd move around. So on a day, they might be talking from anybody, from a dairy farmer to mm. a chemist, yeah. Um, to whoever, and um, twice we were asked to do it and set up a stand for um, surveying. So I'd go out there with a with a jigger with a laser and so I could point it at things and measure it. And, and there'd be groups of kids would be coming around, and um, I was quite shocked. They'd come around and I'd, I'd demonstrate how it measure measured something, and the, all the kids, irrespective respective gender, were quite fascinated. And when it was finished before it was time to move on to the next stall, I would say to these kids, um, so have I convinced any of you to get into surveying? Because I wanted to see how I was, how I was going. Yeah. And a few of the boys ummed and ad, but the girls invariably said, oh no, that's a boy's job. Uh-huh. So teenage girls still yeah. in their mind yeah. um, have, have that sort of attitude. And I don't know what we can possibly do do to um, to change that it 's just going to take generations to change i think it 's not going to happen overnight yeah. by my experiences
1: will um, look towards ha- hospitality um, childcare type of type of things rather than well, i did mean, not they, they
2: didn ex- 't they, they express to me what they thought a girl 's job was, and i don 't believe um, anybody could ever accuse my organization of being um, gender specific i mean the, the finance manager is, is female that's kylie the planning manager is kate yep. um, the survey manager is adam um, male i mean and and yep. so is the engineering manager um, but we we did have emma who was a registered surveyor who worked for us mm-hmm. she only left because she went off on um maternity leave and then when when that finished she um took a job closer to, to home okay so yeah. There's been plenty of um, um, opportunities for um, females yep. at modelss, and Nicole was the ecologist there um, so yeah i 'm very very open to the yeah. the best person for the job it doesn 't yep. matter to me uh, gender at all, but that 's why I was so shocked to hear these girls saying oh no that 's a, that's a boys job
1: yeah okay that 's interesting to hear that um, hmm. yeah I really don 't know how how we get away from from that you know they're pushing stem and all that sort of stuff now but i still don't know yeah if it is getting through something to think about Mm. Mm. okay so do you regret your decision to become a surveyor which one (laughs) to become a surveyor
2: (laughs) oh no not at all um the only part i regret is somehow um ending up in the manager's chair all the time and not out in the field a bit more often. But yeah, it certainly, I never get bored. I can assure you of that. I'm never bored, never bored for one second doing what I do. And um, we have a lot of fun at our office. And um, yeah, I can't say I'd change anything, but I certainly don't regret the decision to get into the profession in the first place. Yeah. I certainly accept the fact I probably would have made a lot more money had I have done something different. Um, but life's about a lot more than um than money, so I certainly don't mind um where I'm at
3: mm.
1: I think nearly most people have sort of said that they uh they've never regretted that decision because they've had such a such a varied career to being able to choose and do different things and and choose what they enjoy doing within the industry and all that sort of stuff so um it does it does have, there is a lot of choices there once you actually get into the industry, isn't there?
2: Oh, there really is. I mean, when I first started, you, you'd turn up to work and they'd give you a bunch of files. I'd say, here's, you know, five, or six small jobs, you know, and you'd be a whole bunch of different suburbs on the central coast, or they might give you one file and say, this is a big job, it's going to take you a week to do. Yeah. Um, and the jobs were all different. You know, some of them were contour and detail surveys. Back then it was with the staff, doing went by Stady with the three intercepts, <laughs> um, you know, everything being booked and <laughs> a lot of idents back then which solicitors don't order anymore, which is really a big mistake on behalf of the whole world as far as I'm concerned. Um, oh, okay. But, but now the world's changed. One thing that happens so much these days, it never used to happen, was um, dual occupancies and multi-dwelling housing, you know. So much of our time's taken up with that kind of work now that back in the 80s that just didn't happen, not the early 80s anyway.
3: Yeah.
2: And. Now, you don't do idents anymore. You do a lot more contour surveys, but they're done with the um, ranging pole mount reflectors and not, yeah. not the staff with the three intercepts. They're a lot quicker. Um, but, yeah, you used to travel around all these different places. You had a variety of work. Mm. Um, depending on which job you are doing and why you were doing it, you'd be out there with different staff, so you're out there with different people. So nothing was routine. It was always different. And then sometimes you would pick... It's going to be forty-five degrees today. We'll go and do the jobs right on the coast. of yeah. it's coming up tonight. It's going to be cool. So tomorrow, we'll go and do the jobs that are inland a bit. You always had that variety. Yeah. So I just no, I would not. I would not change anything. Mm.
1: That's nice. It's nice to to feel that way. That you've um, you've chosen something that you really enjoy. And I think which riding- is
2: why, which is why I don't mind trying to give back to it as well. Which is why I've gone to great lengths to try and. Uh, give people a leg up that are at uni and you know struggling to just just give them a half a day or a day a week to get them a little bit of a feel for it, and then yeah. give them a bit more later. And um, I feel like I've invested a lot of money paying people to do stuff where they weren't earning any money for the for the company, not yeah. in the short term anyway.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, just to try and help the industry and the profession out because I feel like it. It's given me a lot.
1: Yeah, I, I guess it's a pretty big thing that um, someone may have been going to a role in engineering or thinking, oh, no, I didn't get in or there's, you know, I've got more chance of doing the surveying or whatever it may be, not actually knowing and and starting a degree and and not actually knowing what you're up for. I mean, that'd be pretty.
2: Yeah. Look, I don't blame any 17, 18, 19-year-old for not knowing what they want to do in the future. It's a bloody hard thing. I mean, I didn't actually know I wanted to do surveying I just knew, as we said earlier, I just wanted to work outside and not have to deal with people if um, I could avoid it. Um, and it just, it just so happened that surveying happened to generally fit that description.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, so I kind of fell into it that way rather than saying, I want to be a surveyor.
3: Mm.
2: Um, so, yeah, you know, I can understand why young people don't know what they want to do and when they want to do it. But if you have any liking of the outdoors and if you're a sporting person, you must have a reasonable liking for the outdoors um yeah it's not a bad profession to get into
1: yeah i i started in nursing
2: (laughs) nursing well you had you had to deal with people and um probably some of those people weren't very happy that you had to deal with them either (laughs) others would have been very grateful you were there to deal with them but i've seen some grumpy patients
1: oh yeah it didn't last very long um or it lasted a year and then things changed and, and stuff and, and I basically got to the stage of yeah, I had to choose something to have some kind of um, you know, trade or something and yeah, it was something outdoors, don't want to be in an office. And yeah, landscaping or surveying. Surveying with-
2: landscaping landscaping is one I probably could have coped with too, I think, except I feel that um, it it would not have occupied my brain enough. I think once you sort of got into a job, it would have been fairly much physical and not so much thinking. So I I just find surveying just the right amount of both.
3: Yeah. Yeah,
1: well, my choice was based on four years part-time for landscaping or two years full-time for surveying. (laughs) 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 That's how I got into surveying.
2: (laughs) And do you regret your decision?
1: No, not at all. No. That's I, good think, to I think if I stayed with nursing, I think I still would have had um, a, a really good life, a really good career. But I do really love the industry. I love, yeah, working outside, the variety, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah.
2: It's- and, and that's fairly obvious because I believe... This whole dear idea of doing these podcasts was your idea, was it? Is this how it yeah. came about? You just yeah. thought it'd be a good idea. Yeah. Well, that that in itself shows a great deal of love and uh, um, enthusiasm for the profession. So, on behalf of all the people that you've um, interviewed and listened to this, thank you very much.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I
1: um, since leaving leaving you know TAFE and not having the interaction with all my students and stuff, I sort of felt I still needed interaction of some sort and yeah it was one of those things want to write a book or thought I'd want to do a podcast on something and it just you know everything just sort of started to come to me in little dribs and drabs and um yeah I was speaking with Michelle one day and so sort of said yeah I've actually been thinking about doing that and this is what I think and she came up with the name not me um but yeah, so, you know, I've always, any meetings that I've gone to or any surveyors I've met have always had some kind of story to tell. So I sort of thought, well, you know, it'd be nice to nice to get it out there for other people to listen to these stories. So, yeah, that's how it all came about.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've listened to some of them um, for surveyors that I thought I knew pretty well. And I'm, I'm hearing them speak and I go, I didn't know that. Ah. I didn't know that. So... Okay. Uh, I think it's a very, very good thing that you're doing. Yeah.
1: Nice. Good to hear. All right. Who's had the biggest impact on your career?
2: Um, well, that depends on quite how you do, define impact. But in terms of teaching me surveying, mm-hmm. uh, Keith Budnick. Keith Budnick was a examining surveyor at the LPI. Oh. Uh, what is it, this this week? It's the LRS this week. Yeah, LRS um, at the
1: moment.
2: <laughs> yeah. Had he stayed there, he would have been the principal surveyor probably by about, uh, I don't know, 1970 thereabouts. But
3: uh-huh.
2: he, he got a little bit bored with being um, an examining surveyor. So he went and um, did some stuff in the middle of Australia and did two trips to Antarctica and places like that. And oh, wow. then he came back and he set up his own business. But Keith was a particularly, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Well, as an examining surveyor, you know, you basically you pull on a linen plan, somebody lodges a, a DP at the LRS for registration, you're pulling it out at random, yep. so they say, and mm-hmm. you're going out and you're checking that in the field. And if you're going to tell some other surveyor that they're wrong, you need to be bloody sure that you're right. So Keith was fastidious yep. uh, in the extreme, um, he was a particularly good surveyor. He could, he could look at a misclose in a, in a travis and he could identify the angle or the distance, which was most likely the culprit. And, and if he had to go and redo your travis, he would always go back to one spot first and reread an angle and find that that was where the error occurred had been misbooked or somebody kicked a tripod okay. or a waddy or something like that. Yeah. He was really quite a brilliant analytical mind. Of course, Keith, Keith was... Um, Mentored by Harry Pinkston and Keith Whitehead, who were both legends at what the RGs and Land Titles Office, as mm-hmm. it was called back then. Mm-hmm. And of course, he had to go off with the Lands Department and do his um, rural time with a guy called David O'Keefe, who was a fairly much a legend in the um, Lands Department surveying, yeah, um, up around Grafton. He was based, and you know they were still cutting off plenty of uh, crown portions in those days, and it was all axes and brush hook stuff. And it was a pretty wild country, and Mm. So, Keith learned from those guys, and Keith was always very generous in um, teaching others. Yeah. And he was also very short tempered if he didn't learn at a rate <laughs> that he thought was um, appropriate. <laughs> so, they had Keith and those people that uh, taught him had a, a massive impact. Bob Ranson, his partner, um, and Dick Biddle, who also worked at Ranch, Ranson, also had a significant impact. Um, moderating effect, if you like, because where Keith was at times overly fastidious and, and was just going too far, uh, Bob Rancid and, and Dick Biddle were um, more moderate, if you like, in in their view of what needed to be done to achieve a certain outcome. So I, I learned that there were, was more than one way to do something other than you know Keith's way, but I've also never, never left me that if there's any doubt or any room for... Um, concern, then falling back on Keysway is a better way to do it because you, you, you prove the result somehow. Yeah. Um, and then of course, more recently, uh, Bob Harrison and Peter Friedman and David Mepstead who um, are all Sydney based guys are, are mm-hmm. people I've had the opportunity to do work with in certain areas and certain ways. And um, they've been a, a, a huge uh, inspiration to me as well as uh, mentoring me in, in certain ways. Yeah. So I'll be eternally be grateful to those three. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah, those three guys. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: but in in terms of actually running a business and starting our own business, the a guy um, called Robert Scott, um, who was uh, one of the directors of the company, I said, that I worked for oh, yes. at the time yep. when we had the reception that we uh, recession we had to have. Yeah. He was and still is uh, somebody who keeps in touch all the time and um, always recommends people to me. Um,
1: oh, that's really nice.
2: And, you know, it just helps me out a lot. And then, um, um, oh, there's just, you know, being on Port Stephens Council, there's a whole bunch of people there that have, Influenced my life. The general manager of um, Port Stephens Council is the guys who set up the way he set up his department. Even though council's much bigger than Lamotte Group, yeah. um, Over the years, I've actually been a councillor on council. I've actually restructured um, my business to have the same structure as um, Port Stephens Council, albeit with much tinier, smaller yeah, um, okay. staff numbers in each department. But it just works so well. Yeah.
3: Right. So there's a
2: number of people that have um, that I'll be eternally grateful to. Yeah. And I'll never be able to thank them. But I found the world's a funny place. If um, there's so many people do so many nice things for me, that I just try to do nice things for other people, and somehow the world just seems to go around. It just seems to work.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's not hard to to be nice or help someone out in no. some way, uh, shape, especially, or
2: form. Yeah. Mm. And if if you if you do and. Uh, they kick you in the teeth for doing it well you 've learned something but if they are, if yeah. they 're grateful and they move forward you just go well there 's another one i 've set on their way
1: yep yeah. wonderful mm-hmm. on that note let 's take a break and um, we 'll come back shortly
3: all right
0: I hope you enjoyed part one with Paul Stay tuned next week for part two
1: defining boundaries with Peter Cox.